invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me this morning to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 1253. This past uh, week, um, Tuesday night, New Year's Eve, about 9 o'clock, Rebecca and I had the boys in bed and we're sort of settling down to watch some TV or something and then we start hearing loud explosions outside our, uh, our back window. And uh, I wish I could tell you that I only thought kind things about our neighbors, but I don't want to lie in the pulpit. Thought, you know, it's been dark a few hours. You could have done that before bedtime, but uh, nevertheless... Um, I don't love New Year's. Rebecca and I both sort of had that epiphany. We are talking. We don't. We don't just love it uh, as much as we do some other holidays. But there is something about the end of one year and the beginning of another that just sort of naturally invites us to look back uh, at what has happened and to look forward at what might happen. It's even more true at the end of one decade and the beginning of another. And so we can just kind of do a little brief mental exercise. I hope it won't be too painful for you, but just think back about what your life was like in 2010 versus today. My guess is that some pretty major things happened in the intervening decade that shifted the landscape of your life. Some of them you may look back on fondly, others not so much. As you look ahead, we don't have nearly as much clarity about the future as we do about the past, do we? Some of us, the, the past is a little cloudy, but the future is certainly way more cloudy. We don't know what will happen if the Lord allows us to live another 10 years. We can probably surmise that there are going to be things that happen in those coming years that will impact our life as much as, if not more so, than the things that impacted our lives in the past 10 years. Some of them you might be able to predict. You might be able to look ahead and say, you know what, probably in the next 10 years, if the Lord allows me to live that long, this is probably going to happen and that will probably happen. Others, we just need to know, are going to catch us off guard. They'll come totally as a surprise to us, so they won't surprise God. But just as important as what will happen to you in the next 10 years, if the Lord gives you another 10 years, just as important as what will happen to you is what you will choose to do. There will certainly be things that are outside of your control that happen to you, that you can't predict, that you can't do anything about. But there will also be a multitude of choices that will add up day by day over the span of those years. And it's, it's not just the big events. It's not just the big decisions that are going to shape the direction of our lives. It's also the daily choices that we make to move toward holiness and kindness and love, to move away from selfishness and bitterness and fear. And the Bible shows us the importance of these little, we might call them micro choices. Not big decisions like where we're going to live or what job we're going to take or anything like that. But these little micro choices, day after day after day, these choices that produce habits that give shape and direction to our lives. And so what we're going to do today and over the next three months, we're going to look at some of these choices that are before us. We see them 
here in the New Testament. We're going to begin this morning in Colossians 3. So let's read together Colossians 3. We're going to begin in verse 1. It's Paul writing from the Holy Spirit. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Let's pause right there and pray together. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have not left us to try to figure out who You are, what You've done, or what You expect of us, but that You have spoken very clearly in Your Word. And uh, so we pray today, Lord, that Your Holy Spirit would come alongside Your Word and take this Word which is Yours and that You would impress it upon us. Help us not to walk away with hardened hearts, but with softened hearts to respond rightly to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm, I'm, I'm calling this sermon series that we're beginning today, I'm calling it Virtues, because we're going to be focusing on some of the characteristics that should mark every follower of Christ. This passage in Colossians 3 is one of several passages in the New Testament that contains two lists. So on the one hand, Paul lists some vices for us to avoid, some sinful patterns that we should stay away from. So we only read the first four verses, but look down at what he says in verse 5 and following. Here's the list of Vices or sinful patterns to avoid. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he gives us a list of things sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, that list is not exhaustive, meaning Paul does not list every single possible sin that you should avoid there. It's just kind of a sort of a collection of representative things that we should avoid. Then, after he does that, he then gives us a list of virtues that we should pursue. That list of virtues begins in verse 12. Notice what he says in verse 12 and following. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Here's the, the things that we should pursue. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has also as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. So sinful patterns to stay away from sinful patterns to put off, and godly, righteous, holy patterns to put on, vices to avoid, and virtues to pursue. As I get older and wrestle with these vices and these virtues in my own life, I've come to think of them like ruts 
on a path. You know, if you, if you live out in the country and you've got a long driveway, you probably have ruts. That, that's, the, that's the way you drive every time you go, every time. And, and, and when it started, it wasn't like that, right? But you drive on it, and then you drive on it, and then you drive on it, and those ruts get deeper and deeper. And then before you know it, it's just, this is the way I get to my, to my house. The same is true with our actions, with our attitudes. When someone is impatient, for example, it becomes easier and easier to be impatient the next time. I can remember when I was young, going with my granddad to Hardee's, and him just absolutely having a conniption fit because the lady who was taking his order did not know what he wanted on his cheeseburger. You know, he was like he was upset because she didn't know that he didn't want onions on his cheeseburger. And I'm thinking, why is Pawpaw so impatient with this woman? And the answer is because Pawpaw's been impatient a long time. He's made choices. And it's just one of those things where you're, you're impatient long enough and you dig those ruts deeper and deeper. You keep riding down that road of impatience and it gets easier and easier. And before you know it, impatience is like a reflex that you exercise everywhere you go. At home, at work, in traffic, at restaurants. And the reason I say that I wrestle with these is because I see that in my own life now as I'm 32 years old and I'm starting to see, wow, it's, it's easier to, to get impatient or it's easier to, to be whatever. The same is true with any of these things. Bitterness, selfishness, gossip, covetousness, sexual immorality, obscene talk, fill in the blank. If we're not careful, we can dig ruts deeper and deeper until it seems difficult to do anything but those things. And so, over the next three months, we're going to, each week, we're going to zero in on one virtue that the uh, New Testament commands us to pursue. So, one week we might talk about humility, one week patience, one week meekness, any number of things. And my goal is to warn us about the danger of digging sinful ruts to commend to us the value of, of digging godly ruts in the same way that sinful patterns can get sort of dug in. Godly patterns can get dug in as well, which is a good thing. And also for us to sort of take a step back and evaluate where have ruts formed in my life? Where have sinful patterns formed? Where do I see myself finding it easy to go down certain roads? This morning, however, I want to lay some really important groundwork because what I don't want us to do is to think, okay, well, here's this list of vices for me to avoid, and here's this list of virtues for me to pursue, and if I do those things well enough, then God will accept me. I'll have a good position in His eyes. That is contrary to what Paul's saying here in Colossians 3. It's contrary to everything that God says in His Word. Pursuing these virtues and putting off these vices, it's not how we earn a position, a, a position of standing in God's eyes. It's not how we enhance or maintain our position in God's eyes. They are the result of having already received that position by grace through faith. So... Here's how I want to try to state that truth very concisely. Being identified with Christ should lead us to put on the virtues of Christ. 
I'll explain what I mean by that, but being identified with Christ by faith should lead us to put on the virtues of Christ. Or stated even more simply, a new identity leads to new morality. Now we have to make sure we get the order right. If we put morality first, if we put morality before identity, then we're going to be guilty of, of what some people call legalism, which is basically just the idea that salvation is something I have to earn by my good works. I, I have to try hard enough, be good enough, work hard enough, and then God will accept me. But that is totally contrary, as I said, to what Paul says here in Colossians 3 and to what God says everywhere in His Word. God does not say, get rid of these sins and put on these righteous deeds and then I will accept you. I want to show you how that's the, actually the opposite of what he's saying here. He's, he's, he's saying that my acceptance of you is purely an act of my grace. On the other hand, we do need to see the importance of these virtues, of the character of Christ as evidence of salvation. In fact, in Galatians 5, Paul does something very similar where he lists some vices and then he lists some virtues. And what does he call the virtues in Galatians 5? He calls them the fruit of the Spirit, meaning the evidence of the Spirit. When you, when you walk by a pecan tree, the way you know it's a pecan tree is that there are pecans on it. Or there are pecans laying on the ground underneath it. That's how it gives evidence that it's a pecan tree. A pecan tree that doesn't bear pecans is no good. It's only good for being cut down and burned. That's the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 7. A tree that bears bad fruit is not a good tree. If it bears bad fruit, it's not a good tree. It's only good for being cut down and burned. So things like compassion and kindness, things like humility and meekness, patience and forgiveness, peace and self-control, these things are not the cause of salvation, but they are the result. They're not the root, but they are the fruit. They're evidence of the Spirit's presence and work in the life of a believer. But again, we have to get the order right. A new identity leads to new morality, not the other way around. I want to help you see that here in Colossians 3. So let's go back to verses 1 through 4, which we read. These are what we're going to sort of focus on this morning. I'm going to read these verses again. But as I do this time, I'm going to place emphasis on the word with. It's a very simple word, but you're going to hear it three times. With. So notice as we read, If then you have been raised with, with Christ. There's, there's the first instance. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. There's number two. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So three withs. The first with looks back to the past. 
if then you have been raised with Christ. Past tense. One of the, the great gifts that God gave to us through the Apostle Paul was this idea of union with Christ. You can hear it really clearly in Galatians 2 verse 20 where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I mean, think about that. I've been, I've been so united with Jesus that it's as if I was crucified with Him, and now He lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So, if someone has trusted in Christ, it's as if they were crucified with Him. The very worst thing that could possibly happen has already happened. They've also been raised with Christ. That's what Paul says here. If, if then you've been raised with Christ, if you've trusted in Him, then you've been raised with Him, and He now lives in you. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So, by faith, I am so united to Christ that it is as if His death is mine and His life is mine. If that's the case, then I should seek the things that are above and set my mind on things that are above. Now, that's the first with. It looks back to the past. If I've trusted in Christ, then I have been raised with Him. The second with refers to the present. Look at verse 3. For you have died, past tense, that's already happened, you have died, and present tense, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So go back in your mind to Jesus. He has died on the cross. He's been raised from the dead. And now He ascends back to the right hand of the Father. He has fulfilled the work that God gave to Him. And now He is seated at God's right hand. There is only one person in all of human history of whom God has ever said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And that was Jesus. And he, did, he said that before Jesus had fulfilled all the work that God gave Him to do. And so Jesus ascends back to the right hand of God. He sits down at God's right hand and God says, I am so pleased with you, my Son. And what Paul is saying to us here in Colossians 3 is that if you trust in Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's as if I'm so united with Christ, I'm so identified with Him, that it's as if even though I'm standing right here in this pulpit in Henderson, Alabama, that I am at the same time seated in the heavenly places with Christ. And all the love that the Father has for His Son, He has for me. This is not my work. This is not my doing. It's purely a work of God's grace. In fact, in Ephesians 2, after speaking of how we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, listen to what Paul says there. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God was rich in mercy. He loved me when I was dead in my trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if you ask, why would Paul say that my life is hidden with Christ in God? The answer is that it's not my doing. It's because of the richness of God's mercy and the greatness of His love that when I was dead, when I was living in sin, when I was trapped, He made me alive with Christ and raised me up and seated me with Him in the heavenly places. That's all grace. And if that's true then the logical outflow is seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. If, if your life is hidden with Christ in God, it doesn't make any sense to seek the things that are of earth because they're passing away. And I've already got something infinitely better. So the first with looks back. If I trust in Christ, then I've been crucified with Him. I've been raised with Him. If I trust in Christ, then I am... My life is hidden with Him in God. And now the third with refers to the future. Verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So Christ is my life. My identity in Him is anchored in the past. I've been crucified with Christ. I've been raised with Him. My identity is something that I don't have to wait for. I enjoy it in the present. Right now, my life is hidden with Christ in God. Right now, Christ is my life. He can be your life. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And one day, the one who perfectly pleased God, the one who is seated at God's right hand, He will appear in glory. And Paul says that those who are with Christ now will appear with Him then in glory. Here's how the Apostle John states that same truth. This is from 1 John 3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So... If I trust in Christ, I am already, as of this very moment, right now, a child of God. And yet at the same time, what I will be has not yet appeared. What, 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 what will I be? He goes on to say, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. So I can be with Christ, identified with Him, even though I'm not yet perfectly like Him. It's not about the perfection of my character, it's about the perfection of His character. If you trust in Christ, you are right now, at this very moment, a child of God. At the same time, however, you're not yet what you will be. When He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And then John says, Everyone who hopes in Him in this way purifies himself as he is pure. If I know that one day I'm going to be perfectly like Christ, that should cause me 
to strive to be like Him now, even if it's imperfectly. The point of these three withs in Colossians 3 is that our first and most fundamental need is to receive the gift of a new identity. My greatest need, my most fundamental need, is not for God to tell me what I need to do and how I have fallen short of that. My first and most fundamental need is for God to graciously accept me on the basis of His Son, Jesus. Before anyone can pursue the virtues of Christ, they must first be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And even when I receive that new identity, it's not like, okay, now I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and now the rest is up to me. Now I have to work and pursue these virtues to maintain that standing. No, we pursue them because they're like Jesus, because they're like the one who loved us and gave himself for us, the one with whom we've been crucified and raised, the one with whom we are seated at God's right hand, the one with whom we will appear in glory. It's a, there's a reason why God uses the analogy of becoming his child. Because whether you come into a family biologically or through adoption, you have to figure out what it means to be a part of that family. You don't do anything to come into the family. We have, we have two sons. One of them came into our family through adoption. One of them came in biologically. Neither one of them did diddly squat to become a Simmons. We did everything. But they have to learn what it means to be a child of Matt and Rebecca Simmons. If they mess up, that doesn't change anything. Uh, we don't say, okay, well, you made some bad choices today, so you're, you're not our son today. No, no, no. There's grace. There's mercy. There's forgiveness. But there still should be a sense in which they should be striving to please the ones who love them, the ones who have accepted them and welcomed them into their family. The same is true for us. We don't do anything at all to become God's children. And yet, once we've been welcomed into that family, we should strive to be like the one with whom we have been united. There's one more place where you can see this truth in Colossians 3. Look down at verse 12. This is really, really important. This is where Paul is starting to tell us to, to put on these virtues of Christ. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, put on then. Now, there's a phrase there. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Let's just kind of put brackets around that and we'll set that aside for a moment, okay? What Paul is saying is, the bottom line is, put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and so forth. You see that? He's saying, put on these virtues. But he doesn't just say that. That phrase is really important. He says, put on these things as or, or because you are already God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So this is, 
not a blueprint for how you can become God's chosen ones, for how you can become holy and beloved. Paul is speaking to people who are already chosen, who are already holy and beloved. Being chosen, holy, and beloved is not a status we have to earn or that we have to maintain through our works. It's a status that is graciously granted to us in Christ. Jesus is God's chosen one. He is God's holy and beloved Son. He is the one of whom God said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. If I am in Christ, if I've been united to Him by faith, then I'm so identified with Him that when God looks at Matt Simmons, He sees His holy, chosen, and beloved Son. He doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see my failures. He sees Jesus. So God is simply commanding us to be to become what He's already reckoned us to be. He's already reckoned me to be holy and beloved. And now He's telling me to act like what I've already declared you to be by grace through faith. I've already declared you to be my child. I've already declared you to be holy. I've already declared you to be beloved. I've already declared you to be chosen. Now act like what I've declared you to be. So the starting point then is to make sure that we truly are with Christ. Before you can be like Christ, you first have to be with Him. You have to be identified and united with Him by God's grace through faith. A few years ago when we were in Southeast Asia, this country that's 99% plus Muslim, everywhere we go, Muslims... And everywhere we go, uh, everyone was perfectly kind and hospitable and inviting to us. It was, you know, when you kind of get used to watching the news, it's a little bit like, oh, okay, I wasn't expecting this. And when we're going around and people are welcoming us to their homes, can we get you some coffee or some tea or something to eat or anything like that, it, it hit me. There is very little difference between a cultural Muslim who is doing everything he or she can to work their way into God's favor, trying and trying and trying and knowing at the end of the day that they don't know if they've been good enough. There is absolutely no difference between that person and the good old boy or girl in Pike County who's doing the exact same thing, except instead of praying to Allah five times a day, they go to church a few times a year. Instead of giving alms to the poor, they tithe every so often. Instead of, uh, instead of confessing that Allah is God and Muhammad is His prophet, they, at some point in their life they've prayed some kind of prayer and asked Jesus into their heart, quote-unquote. They're banking on everything they've done instead of God who says, no, 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 no. It's not about what you can do or how good you can do it but it's about what I've done in my Son, and have you looked to Him in faith. In fact, God said through the prophet Isaiah, we, we sometimes think, okay, well, maybe I haven't done anything bad enough. The problem is, what God says is, that your righteousness is like filthy rags. If you're not in Christ, then even your very best efforts are disgusting to God, because they haven't been done in faith 
And yet the good news is, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a, results, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God doesn't need your good works. He doesn't want your good works. He wants you to trust in His Son. He wants it to be clear that He's the one who has shown grace and kindness toward you. That's what He's after. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He doesn't want the world to look and say, wow, what a great guy Matt Simmons is. Look at how kind he is and how perfect he is. He wants the world to look and say, wow, look at the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward that sinner. And yet, once you are with Christ, God does intend to use you for His glory to, to be like Christ. Paul goes on to say that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want you to do something with me. I want you to grab your hymnal. You can go ahead and close your Bible and grab your hymnal and turn to number 437. This is the, the hymn that we're going to sing in just a, a minute. But before we sing it, I want you to look at some of the words with me. Um, a very, very simple exercise that I would commend to you on occasion is uh, to just look at the words of a song that you may or may not be familiar with. There's something about just reading the words um, that, that does something. And if you don't have a hymnal, I haven't asked anybody's permission for this, but I'll ask forgiveness. Take one, okay? We'll, we'll buy some more. So if you don't have one, just take one home with you and we'll buy some more, all right? God forgive me for I know not what I do. Um, I just did this this week with, with number 437. I was just sort of looking through, okay, what would be a good song for us to close the service on? And I came across this one, and I was just reading the words. Take up thy cross and follow me. I heard my master say, I gave my life to ransom thee. Surrender your all today. And then my response is, wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Second verse, He drew me closer to His side. I sought His will to know. And in that will I now abide. Wherever He leads, I go. Third verse, It may be through the shadows dim or, or the stormy sea. I take my cross and follow Him wherever He leadeth me. And then the fourth verse, My heart, my life, my all I bring to Christ who loves me so. He is my Master, Lord, and King. Wherever He leads, I'll go. I don't know if it's just the particular tradition in which I was brought up or what, but I have often sung that song quite literally. 
Meaning, you know, God, if you call me to go wherever, I'll, I'll go. And that certainly, there's some truth to that. We should be willing to go physically wherever He leads us. But that does not seem to be primarily what the author had in mind when he wrote these words. The song is more about being willing to go figuratively wherever the Lord would lead me. Whether that is uh, in His will. He says in the second verse, He drew me closer to His side. I sought His will to know, and in that will I now abide. Wherever He leads, I'll go. It may be through the shadows dim or o'er the stormy sea. I take my cross and follow Him wherever He leadeth me. So I want to pose that question to you. I mean, and this was a question I asked myself this week as well. Can I say this in sincerity? Am I willing to surrender my all to the one who loves me more than I could possibly imagine? Would you be willing to say, in the words of the fourth verse, My heart, my life, my all I bring to Christ who loves me so. He is my Master, Lord, and King. Wherever He leads, I'll go. That may mean for someone coming to Christ to receive the gift of His righteousness, surrendering to Him in faith and repentance for the very first time. Saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to stop trying to be the captain of my own life. I'm going to get out of the driver's seat and surrender to you. That might be the way someone would respond to this. For others, it may mean being willing to follow Him in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. To say, okay, Lord, I see where in Your Word You're trying to lead me into righteousness, and yet I've been trying to do things my way, and so I'm going to, to begin pursuing Your character and growing in likeness to You. Too often we think, well, I'll give 90% of my life to Him. But there's this one part of my life that I'm going to keep quarantined. And I'm going to put up a big sign that says, no entry. God, you can have anything else except this part. I'm not willing to give it up to you. We would never in a million years say those words, but we live as if they're true. You can't go in that room, Lord. You can't look in that closet. You can't turn over that stone. And all the while we're digging ruts in roads that lead us further away from Him. And so what I'm trying to do this morning and what I, what I, I hope this hymn will do for us as we sing it is I'm just trying to stand in the middle of the road and wave my hands and say, think about where you're going. Think about, not, not, not physically where you're going, but think about where you're going in your life. What direction are you headed in? Whatever you do, do not harden your heart. Don't keep digging those ruts deeper and deeper. Turn around and surrender to Him. Say with your whole heart, wherever He leads, I'll go. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, how You challenge us and how You do... Uh, cause us to stop and turn around. I pray, Holy Spirit, that You would do that now. Turn us around to, toward Jesus. Help us to look to Him in faith. Help us to turn from the sins that are keeping us from You. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.